Today I'm going to talk about something which has deeply impacted my life and I know many of you here. And that's every one of us here, deep in our hearts, know that we're not perfect. And because we're imperfect, and we're an imperfect people living in an imperfect world, we all make mistakes. Anybody want to give a testimony to some of those? Oh boy, you're telling me. And we all experience failures in life. See, everybody in the business world wants to talk about success, getting to the top. But nobody talks about the reality of what happens when you and I have failures. And I want to look tonight, just going back, because Easter wasn't that long ago, to the night that Jesus was arrested. And that very night, two of his closest friends had massive failures. First, there was the betrayal of Judas. And then there was the denial of Peter. Similar sins, just different expressions of denying Christ. Two different, very, very different responses and two very different outcomes. Judas rejected God's mercy and killed himself. Peter accepted God's mercy and became a pivotal leader in the church after an absolute disaster. So today, I want to draw some lessons from Peter's life based on God's mercy and my failures. I'm going to look at three questions. Number one, what is the cause of personal failure? What is that cause? Number two, we're going to look at what should I do when I fail, because everyone in, in this room has failed and will fail again in the future. What do we do when we fail? And number three, what does Jesus do when I fail? Very important, that third one. So firstly, what causes our personal failures? In other words, three things that we can learn from the life of Peter that he did wrong on that night. And these are the three most common causes of your failure and mine, by the way. Take note. The first one is this. We overestimate our strengths. We overestimate our strengths. Anybody ever done that apart from me? <laughs> yeah, boy, oh boy. Let's pick it up. Matthew 26, verse 31. If you've got your Bibles, own them up. Otherwise, it's on the screen. 31. Jesus said, tonight, don't miss this, every one of you will desert me. Have you seen that before? Or did you just think it was Peter? Tonight, every one of you will desert me. For the scripture says that when the shepherd is killed, the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Here comes danger. Then Peter boasted. But Lord, even if everybody else, in other words, in other, even if all these other wallies, these fickle flakes around me, deny you, I won't. Look at it. I will never deny you. Top of his lungs. Jesus, knowing exactly what was going to happen, because he is God, 
replied Peter, the truth is that before this night is even over, and before the rooster crows at dawn, you will deny knowing me three times. And Peter insisted, but Lord, I would never do that. Even, and then he, start, and then he has to borrow some strength because he's feeling desperate. He says, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny knowing you. And all the other disciples vowed the same thing. No, notice how strongly at the top of his lungs, I'd never do that. You know, my experience is that an awful lot of businesses have completely failed because they overestimated their strengths. A lot of battles I have read in history have been lost because people overestimated their strengths. A lot of students had flunked out because they were smart, thought they were more diligent and smarter than they were. A lot of spouses have fallen into affairs because they thought they were stronger than that. A lot of Christians have been seduced into an affair with the world because they thought, I'll never get bitten with that. I'm strong enough. I won't be influenced. But Jesus says something different. Friends, beware of thinking this could never happen to you. 1 Corinthians 10. If you think I am strong and I can handle this, I'd never fall for that temptation. Then be careful. For you could easily fall too. Some grace is needed here. In other words, Paul is saying, don't be naive. Any one of us in this room, given the right situation and the right circumstances, could fall flat in our face. And that's hard to accept, but it's the truth. Given the right situation. I've also noticed that often after you come through a great victory or things have been going well for a while, you can go straight into a challenge and be caught off guard. I noticed, for example, after, after uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness came straight after his baptism. Interesting connection. Peter's temptation came straight after the Last Supper. A high point. Straight after a high point. The second thing I want you to notice, and one of the reasons why we've, uh, we fail, is we fear the disapproval of other people. Big one. We fear the disapproval of others. And this causes far more problems than we realize. Every time you make a, a decision based on the fear of disapproval, you sow seeds for an eventual failure in your life. You go with the flow, even when you know it's not right. The culture is pushing you down that path. And then you start to make commitments you can't keep because you're scared to say no. You're scared to have boundaries. And then you become a people pleaser and a coward. And the Bible says the fear of man is a trap or a snare. Somebody's got an older version there. Trap, snare, same thing. You, you get caught. You don't see a trap coming, you fall into it. And next minute, ah, can't get out of it. You're caught. Matthew 26, 58. Notice these first few words, which are critical. Peter followed Jesus 
at a distance. And that right there is a major problem. Right there. Cultural Christianity wants to know Jesus from a distance. Not getting too close. Not associating too close with this man. They may claim to believe God, but they still do whatever the heck they want. It's my life, my time, my talent, my treasure, my life to do with what I want. Now, friends, let me say this clearly and as honestly as I can. That is not biblical Christianity. That's a facade which will count for nothing. Lord, Lord, didn't we say? He says, I never knew you. Go read that, Matthew 5. Interesting uh, check. So, Peter followed Jesus at a distance to the courtyard of the high priest's palace. And he went and he sat down with the guards to see what was going to happen. To see what was going to happen to Jesus. And as he was sitting in the courtyard, a servant girl, probably a teenager, came up to him and said, You were with Jesus of Galilee, weren't you? But standing here, there, excuse me, in front of everyone, Peter denied it. I don't even know what you're talking about, he said. Here's this burly fisherman who spent three full years with Jesus being pushed into a corner by a teenage girl because of the fear, and not standing up to her because of the fear of what other people would think. See, people, Peter struggled with people pleasing most of his life. Actually, Paul had to rebuke him once, point blank. At this point in time, I just want to just take a very brief pause and ask you a few quick pointed questions. Number one, are you following Jesus at a distance? Number two, are you kind of like sitting in the background just waiting to see what will happen? Number three, this is a big one. Whose opinion in your life matters more than God's? Number four, have you ever asked yourself why the opinions of others are so important to you? Socrates said the unexamined life isn't worth living. And I'd like to suggest the unexamined faith is a recipe for unexpected outcomes. Proverbs 29.25 says this, It is dangerous trap to be concerned with what others think of you, but if you trust in the Lord, you will be safe. Thirdly, how else do we end up making major fail, getting ourselves into issues and, and, and having failures? Because we speak without thinking. We just speak without thinking. It's just out there. And this may be the most common cause of all. We put our mouth in motion before we put our minds in gear. We speak impulsively. We speak rashly. In haste and often thoughtlessly. We just react. And we don't pause, whoa, 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 hold on a second, to consider the damage that it may cause. And we base our words on what we feel. If we feel insecure, boy. We'll just let fly. Or anger, we feel angry, we let fly with anger. 
Now, Peter is clearly nervous. Notice what's going to happen here in Peter's life. He's uptight. He's fearful. He's in crisis mode. He's been up quite a bit of the night. Now, you're going to see his anger come out. Matthew 26, 71. Then Peter went to the entrance of the courtyard, and there another woman saw him and said to him, uh, those standing here, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. Again, Peter denied it, and this time he swore an oath. And that just means, I'm absolutely telling you, I do not know this man. But after a while, the men who had been standing there came over to Peter and said, we know that you are one of them because we can tell your Galilean accent. It's as obvious as an Australian accent. They were from up north, like in England. Do you have different dialects? We know. <laughs> you sound like one of them. That's what he's saying. But look what happens here. Peter then lost his temper and started cursing and swearing. He shouted, I don't know the man. And immediately... He heard the rooster crow. Friends, swearing is a sign of frustration and fear. It's a sign of not thinking. On the screen, the tongue is a small thing, but what an enormous damage it can do. Just as a tiny spark can burn up a great forest, a tongue is a flame of fire. That part of your body is full of wickedness and can poison everything else in your life. It is set on fire by hell itself and can turn our whole lives into a blazing flame of destruction and disaster. James 3, 5, and 6. You may want to write that out. Obviously, it's not on the screen. <laughs> but the thing that I, I, struck me, immediately heard the rooster crow. A rooster crow. He heard a crow. I imagine the rest of Peter's life Every time he heard a rooster crow, he ate crow. <laughs> he reminded him of his biggest, of the biggest failure in his life. Every time that blessed thing. And last time I checked, roosters crow every day. <laughs> you can't get away from it. The truth is, in your life too, you have triggers. But you have a choice. You can be reminded of your failure or... You can choose the other side. You can be reminded of God's mercy. Now, the three things that Peter did wrong here, three things that Peter did right. And these are some of the steps to recovery moving forward. Number one, when you royally screw up, to use a common colloquialism, you need to grieve. You don't minimize your failure. You don't justify it. You don't excuse it and brush it off or downplay it, to get past your failure, you, you can't get over it. You have to go through it. Matthew 26, 75. The Bible says, When Peter heard the rooster crow, he remembered that Jesus had said, Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Then Peter went outside, and he wept bitterly. Bitterly. It was a gut-wrenching, bitter grieving. Imagine how disappointed Peter must have felt in himself. I've just lived with Jesus for three and a half years, 24-7. But when the pressure is on, he failed. But Peter ran up to his failure, and this is what God wants. 
Psalm 51 verse 17, the sacrifice that God wants is a broken and a contrite spirit. God will not reject the humble and repentant heart. In other words, God, I am so sorry. And I'm going to change the way I have been living. Number two, I want to suggest to you to let your small group support you. Notice the group sessions here on the screen. It was Easter morning. Mary Magdalene went around and found the disciples together, grieving and weeping. She found them, the disciples gathered together. They were gathered together. When you're in trouble, you must resist the urge to isolate yourself. Actually, it's then when you need godly support more than ever. Another example is on Easter night, John 20, verse 19 on your outlines. That evening, the disciples were together again. They were again together. With the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, suddenly Jesus appeared in the middle of their group and said to them, Peace be with you. The disciples were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Friends, one of the reasons why you need friends, biblical, godly friends in a crisis, is when you're in a crisis, it's often hard to think straight. They can help you. And the third example of their small group, in John 20, verse 26, a week later, the disciples were together, again, meeting in a home. There's a third example. And actually, the fact is, for the next 50 days, they just hang out with each other. The third thing that Peter did well, and we need to do, is we need to cast myself on God's mercy. We know Peter did this because of what he wrote later on. He starts a brand new book with this new line. 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, he says, Because of what? Because of God's great mercy, he has given us a new life by raising Christ Jesus from death. This fills us with hope. But why is this? It's because of God's great mercy. Not because of condemnation. We're not filled with hope because of despair or shame of what we've done wrong or even timidity. And later he says this from personal experience. 1 Peter 5, 7, he says, Cast all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Why did Peter tell people to do that? Because that's exactly what he did when he blew it to the max. He cast his anxiety, he cast himself on the mercy of God. And by the way, for the you fishermen, I'm not talking about cast like we would cast like trout fishing. Or even normal snapper fishing if you're soft baiting. Not talking about that. The word in Greek actually means drop it. Drop it. That's what it means. Don't do what some of you do. Cast it to the Lord and go, hmm, and then pull it all the way back and you've got the same problem again. Drop it. That's what that word means there. You, to cast yourself on God's mercy is to say, God, there is no way that I ever deserve your forgiveness or your kindness, but you are kind, you are forgiving and merciful, and I need a fresh start. So I give this to you, Lord, and you drop it. Now, so much of the time, Satan is whispering in your heart and in your ear, you are not good enough. There's no way God will ever be able to use you again after what you did. And Satan doesn't want to get you thinking at all about God's mercy. But when you cast all your care on him, you'll not despair. When you cast your care, you won't despair. So what does Jesus do with our failures? Jesus actually told Peter in advance that he knew of his impending test. 
See, because again, he's God, he knows everything in advance. And here it is on Luke 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, Satan has seeked, asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. So that when you have repented, that means done a U-turn, you were going that way and you turned around this way, that's what repentance means. I was going down there, I changed, and now I'm going this way. And turn back to me again. He says, strengthen and build up your brothers. So when you have repented and turned back to me again, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back and strengthen and build up your brothers. So what do we learn? Five things that Jesus does with our failures. You may want to write these down. Number one, he's not shocked. How do we know that? Well, he clearly said, Satan wants to sift you. He knew that he was going to be denied, but I prayed for you. See, God is never surprised or caught off guard by anything that you or I do, even the stupid stuff. He knows. He already knows everything in advance. He knows where your weak spots are. You may be able to hide them from other people, but God knows exactly where your weak spots are and mine. Psalm 103 verse 14 says this. God certainly knows what we are made of. And he bears that in mind that we are dust. He also knows everything that Satan will throw at you. So number one, he's not shocked. Number two, he prays for us. Peter, I've already prayed for you. He knew in advance. He prays for us. That's what the Bible says Jesus is doing in heaven right now. In Hebrews 7.25, Jesus is able to save us completely. That means from all of our failures and stuff-ups. Because in heaven, he lives to intercede on our behalf. He's always talking to the Father and asking him to help us. So we learn that Jesus does five things. One, he's not shocked. Number two, he prays for us. Number three, he believes in us and he expects us to recover. He believes in us. Look at this, Luke twenty-two thirty-two. 32. So when you have repented, turn back to me again, not if. He knew. Now this is a mark of a true believer, this next verse, which many have missed as I've read through Proverbs. Proverbs 24 verse 16 says this, For even though a what type of a man? Falls how many times? He will rise again. Now the point is this, righteous men fall. Because nobody's perfect. Right? But he gets up again. Even righteous people stumble and fall. We repeatedly fail. Our biggest weaknesses, in fact, I've found, have you too, are habitual. We do them over and over and over. Maybe it's losing our temper. Maybe it's some other attribute in your marriage. Whatever it may be, over and over. God just doesn't show his mercy one, uh, to one-time failures. Now we are seeing the example of Jesus believing in Peter from a comment God has the angel made on Easter morning. Mark 16 verse 6. The angel said, I know you're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he's not here. He's risen from the dead. Now, Go tell his disciples, look at what's happening next, and Peter. Notice the separation there. 
He's gone ahead of you to Galilee, and he'll see you there just as he promised. See, here, the angel is separating, separating out Peter for special encouragement because he felt he lower than lower than lower than low. Oh, yeah, all the other guys weren't there at the crucifixion, but he was the one at the top of his lungs who said, I don't know him and denied him. That's mercy. That's love. And that leads to the fourth thing that Jesus does. He shows us mercy when we are down. Down, doobie doo, down, down. Boy, have we blown it. A tender example of this is in John 21. Two weeks later, Jesus appeared again to the disciples beside the Sea of Galilee. Seven of the disciples were there. Simon Peter, and Simon Peter said, I'm going fishing. You know why? Because Peter's depressed. He's bummed out big time. I'm giving up. I'm going back to fishing, my business. We'll come too, they all said. So they went out into the boat, and even though they fished all night, they caught nothing. Ever felt like that? Working, working hard, not getting many places. At dawn, the disciples saw a man standing on the shore, but they couldn't see it was Jesus, and he called out, Friends, have you caught any fish? Not a thing, they replied. They're honest about their failure. And then Jesus said, Throw out your net onto the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll get plenty of fish. So they did what Jesus said to do, and instantly they caught so many fish, they couldn't even drop the net because it was so full of fish. Then John said to Peter, Hey, mate, it's the Lord. When Peter realized that, he put in his tunic because he'd been stripped down to work, jumped into the water and swam ashore, leaving the others in the boat to pull the loaded net to shore. For they were only about 300 feet offshore. When they got to shore, they saw that Jesus was cooking fish and bread over a charcoal fire. Got a barbie down here. And Jesus said, hey, bring some of the fish that you caught. So Peter went back on board, dragged the net to shore, and it was filled with 153 large fish. And yet the net had not torn. Now come and have some breakfast, Jesus said. And now they were sure it really was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and the fish. This was the third time Jesus has appeared to his disciples since they'd been raised from the dead. Now question. If you had just been totally betrayed by your best friend... And this person denied knowing you in a crisis. Would you cook them breakfast and serve them? That, my friends, is mercy. That's an example of Jesus' mercy. God's mercy to you is not dependent upon your performance. Lamentations 3 verse 22 says this in a very famous passage. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. In other words, there's a fresh supply every day. Great is your faithfulness. It's never exhausted, in other words. God says, I love you with a mercy that is everlasting. He doesn't say, well, I've had enough of your failures. He doesn't say, well, not the same old sin again. Do you really realize how faithful God's mercy is to you? The wonder and the depth and the breadth and the height of God's mercy. And the last point is the greatest wonder of mercy. And this is this. 
In God's mercy, he uses us and our failures to build his church. Jesus had told Peter this in Luke 22, 32. When you have turned back to me, strengthen and build up your brothers. He's talking about the brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God, the church, his bride. Now here's the rest of the story right there on the beach in Galilee. John 21. After breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than all these? Now he's starting to echo back to the statement at the Last Supper where Peter said at the top of his lungs, I love you more than the rest of all of these and I will never deny you. That's what he's echoing back to. Jesus is going back to that. Um, and Simon Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, uh, Peter replied, then feed my lambs, my flock. That's a church, the flock of God. Jesus said, excuse me, then Jesus repeated the same question. Peter, do you love me? That's agape in the Greek. That's a volitional, self-sacrificing love. That means it costs something. It costs something. Do you love me to the point where it will cost you something? Unconditionally. Do you agape me? Love me unconditionally to the point where it will cost you. Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep. He comes back again. I want you to care for the flock, the body of Christ. Take care of my sheep. Now, Jesus does not settle for quick, cheap, and nasty, superficial answers. So again, he dives into this. Jesus asks the same question one more time. Peter, do you love me? Can you hear the exasperation about to come into Peter's voice. Now Peter was grieved that Jesus asked a question a third time. So he said, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. And Jesus replied, then feed my sheep. Friends, real love for the Savior, real love, self-sacrificing, agape love, is a prerequisite for lasting service. Let me say that again. Agape love is a prerequisite for lasting service. Not what's in it for me. And we show our love for God by helping other people in the family of God. Both Judas and Peter failed. Both denied Christ. Judas became a traitor and Peter became a teacher, an encourager. What are you going to do with the failure? What are you going to become through your failure? And the fact is that God can and will build his church with people who have failed, but respond to the mercy of God. On the screen, Jesus said in Matthew 16, Now I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Friends, Jesus wants to use your failures to build his church. But there are two questions. What failures have you had that God wants to use to build his church? Maybe some of you have had a failed business. 
And you're to help business people know what it's like and to help them through that process. Maybe you've had a bankruptcy, or maybe you've had a broken marriages, and maybe God wants to take that pain because he never wastes a pain. Your greatest pain will often be your greatest ministry. My brother Pat was 14 years as a heroin addict. He uses that now as his greatest pain, as his greatest embarrassment, and his greatest regret to bless and bring people this direction. Maybe you've had an addiction too. Maybe you can help other people who want to be helped. So God wants to turn your biggest failure into your greatest ministry because he never wastes a pain or a failure. And the second question I would have, so identify that, and the second one is, are you going to respond to your failure like a Judas and give up or a Peter? Both have major failures. Judas became a traitor. Peter became a teacher. Judas had a breakdown, but Peter had a breakthrough. A breakthrough in Israel. It never turned back again. Judas gave up, but on this side, Peter looked up and he accepted the wonder of God's mercy. Judas died in condemnation, but Peter lived on earth for the celebration in heaven. And just 50 days after Peter's biggest failure, God chose him to preach on the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 people were baptized on the first day of the church. Let's close our eyes in prayer. Bow our heads. This morning, I just want to pause for a brief moment and ask you, would you pray this prayer? If this is you, just join along with me in your mind, because God knows. Would you say that, God, I've had failures in my life. And like Peter, I've certainly overestimated my strengths. I've said I'd never do that, but did. I've certainly feared the disapproval of other people. And I've been quiet when I know I should have spoken up. And I've done nothing when I should have done something. Like Peter, I've denied you when I could have spoken up for your work. Or when I could have told other people about your love. And that was because Lord, I was more worried about their disapproval And that's a trap that I've fallen into. And Lord, you know. You've been in every conversation I've ever had. And you know there's been many times I've spoken without thinking. And my tongue has got me into a boatload of trouble. Father, I want to do things right. I want to do the right things that Peter did. I don't want to brush it aside and rationalize my failures. I want to firstly today admit them. And I'm coming to you today with a repentant heart and saying, God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me for the times that I've isolated myself and tried to handle everything on my own? And Lord, I have been so prideful, I haven't even told anybody else about my pain. Would you help me to connect with people that know you, that'll help me grow? And then most of all, Lord, I cast myself on your mercy. And like a giant boulder, I want to let go of my past failures and just drop it. I want to drop my anxiety. I want to drop my insecurities and my fears, the regrets and the shame. And all the things, Lord, that Satan pulls to trigger me and to whip me. I cast myself on your mercy. I don't deserve your forgiveness or your grace. 
But Lord, I do know this. You are an amazingly forgiving God and you love to show mercy. Thank you that you are not shocked at my failures and my fickleness. Thank you that you're praying for me. Lord, thank you that you know my name and that you give me encouragement, not discouragement. That you show me mercy and, and that, Lord, you would fix me breakfast. Thank you for, that your mercies never come to an end, that they are new every morning, as your word says. Even tomorrow morning, they'll be new for me as I go to work. You are faithful, God. Great is your faithfulness. I don't I want to ever be condemned, Lord, like the enemy would have, but I do want to rest in your faithfulness. I want to be a teacher and an encourager. I ask this humbly in your name. Amen.